Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tovia Kopsty. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. Our Tribe, the podcast is powered by the Podcast Fellowship, a global Jewish outreach nonprofit, which is helping Jewish young adults understand Torah, understand what the Torah has to say and why it's relevant and what it has to do with their lives. And the answer is, of course, a lot. In this podcast, this is season two, episode one of season two, we get to meet with the great Bob Diener. Bob Diener was an innovator in the space of hotel bookings, travel bookings, airline bookings. In the very early years of the internet, he was there and he was innovating. And it's a very interesting story. What's unique about this podcast, besides Bob being totally unique in his own, is that we have for the first time podcast fellowship students on the podcast listening to the interview and then with the Q&A afterwards, which is going to be our model going forward, God willing. They ask great questions. This is probably the questions that you would want to ask if you're an entrepreneur and you're interested in becoming an entrepreneur. So don't miss that part at the end, about 45 minutes in. Enjoy now our Tribe the Podcast, powered by the Podcast Fellowship. Okay, we have the pleasure of sitting here today with Bob Diener from Florida. How are you doing, Bob? All right, it's great to be with you. Okay, thank you so much for joining us and and for sharing with us your vast experience and what you can share from your life and experiences. It's it's very valuable to our students and to anyone who's listening. Great, well, happy to to help uh, students get on the right path. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a, um, uh, very famous Jewish line, which is uh, Gesher Tzarmo. It's a very narrow bridge. You go a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, you can fall off. So you want to definitely go across the bridge in the right way. Okay, excellent. So Bob, let's start out first with, uh, tell us, tell us what, tell us your story. Where, where did you start from in terms of your professional, just tell us from the beginning. How'd you grow up? Where'd you grow up? What was your upbringing like? How'd you get into what you do? I, I know you've done many things over your career. Uh, it's a lot to cover in a short time, but but we'd love to hear the story. Sure. I'll just tell you in a nutshell. I, I grew up in Miami Beach. I was a student at Hebrew Academy. Uh, and after after I graduated, I went on to University of Florida where I studied. Uh, my major was in economics. And then I went to law school at Cornell. And after law school, I traveled around the world with uh, my current business partner of uh, 30 plus years. and. Uh, we developed a strong connection, ended up going into business together after we practiced law. But right after law school, I started my career at the firm at Gibson Dunn in Los Angeles, very large uh, corporate law firm. And I worked there for about two and a half to three years. And I had a part-time travel business, uh, which I worked on at nights and the weekends. And it grew into a much bigger business. And I ended up going into it full time. And so it was on, it was on the airline side, it was on the airline side of the business, uh, for a good number of years. Uh, I was, I moved to Hawaii because that was, uh, really the best place for the business I was in because of the distance and the kind of percentage of the population that used to travel. Almost everybody had rock fever and wanted to get off the island. And so there were a lot of airline tickets sold, especially per capita. So that was a, that was a great market for my business. And then it expanded and I moved to New York. Um, what was that? You said you were working on the airline side. What exactly was that business? How, 
How did it work? Sure. I was what you call an airline consolidator. So or otherwise known as a bucket shop. So we would buy bulk seats uh, and, and bulk seats were basically you buy um, tickets in advance from an airline. And these were airlines that that were kind of the weaker airlines. They don't exist anymore, like TWA, Pan Am, Eastern mm-hmm. and so forth. Uh, and so we would buy bulk seats and resell them. And then we uh, stumbled upon when I was in when I was in law school, we stumbled upon uh, these free certificates they used to give out. So when you would travel through some major airports like O'Hare, some of the airlines would give you a certificate for 50 percent off your next flight and people would just uh, be throwing them in the garbage. So I, I would pick them up and, and I looked at them. I went to some travel agencies and they said, Bob, can you get me more of these? I said, well, uh, let me see what I can do. So I recruited many of my law school colleagues to pick these up when they were traveling, either from the garbage or buy them from a nominal fee from people as, as they were giving them out. And, and we'd resell them. And it turned out to be a, a, a robust business. And then many airlines came out with free certificates or discount certificates or upgrades that were at the time freely transferable. And so that became kind of a, um, an exchange business that we um, had uh, started alongside this airline consolidation business. So that was that was really my first business. And uh, again, it was it actually started when I was in law school uh, and that helped get me through law school. And then when I started working in a big law firm, I didn't have as much time, but still I would I would uh, find some time at nights and on the weekends uh, on Sundays to um, work in this business. And then it grew and grew, and there was a lot of demand, and I decided to take a leave of absence uh, from my law firm. And I moved to Hawaii, uh, and I only knew one person there. It was a friend of mine that clerked for a judge out there, and she helped get me set up with the place. And I moved out there, and it turned out to be an incredible market for our airline tickets and spent uh, uh, close to three years there before moving to New York to expand the business. And it wasn't actually in that airline business until 1991, uh, we sold it then. It was actually good timing before the Gulf War. And I took some time off and was bored to death uh, sitting around the beach in my flip-flops and bathing suit. Back in Hawaii and, or back in, in Miami? Now, this was, I came back to Miami. Okay. Uh, where I grew up. And my business partner and I, we were both very bored. And we took a, a trip to Belize to go scuba diving for a few days to figure out what are we going to do next and deal with this boredom? And we came up with the um, idea of hotels. It was uh, the company at the time was called Hotel Reservations Network. And remember, there was no Internet at the time. So the idea was that most people booked hotels on their own. And few hotels were booked to tra- through travel agencies because it wasn't very profitable for travel agencies. It was a smaller uh smaller amount of the sale. And so travel agencies weren't very interested in, in booking hotels. And so people typically pick up the phone, book the hotel reservation on their own. And when you got to you know busy periods like New Year's Eve or a major ball game, it was very difficult to find hotel rooms. And uh, also people always want a better price, right? And it was very difficult to shop for price. There was no internet. So the only way to really know what the price was, was just to keep calling and trying to find out a key a key code or some membership program you can belong to to get a better deal. But it, it was very difficult. And so um, we came up with the idea of, of having 
it can solve a you know kind of a central place to go to book your hotel rooms through toll-free numbers. And and that was our original business. People would call a toll-free number. We would go out and make deals with hotels for number one, availability, and number two, uh, special rates. And then people would call our toll. We would advertise the toll-free number. People would call a toll-free number. We had a good network from the airline business. So we had a good kind of regular base, especially of travel industry professionals and travel agencies that knew us that worked with us. And so we had a, you know, a market really right away for, for these hotel rooms. And so we started marketing it that way. And that's, uh, that's how we got into the hotel business. It was several days of crunching papers. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Paper Chase, but it was just like the movie Paper Chase where they're, and they're writing ideas down and crunching the paper and throwing it against the wall. So we did that for several days. We tried to think of a lot of different businesses and we came up with hotels for several reasons. Number one, we didn't need physical facilities. So we could book a hotel anywhere in the world just by phone and we didn't need storefronts. Number two, it was a, uh, it was a lot of competition which was actually better than the airline industry that ended up consolidating. And there's not as many airlines today, as you know, but there are a lot of hotels. And so competition is good because, uh, although we, you, if, if you're, if you can only work with one vendor, well, they control the pricing and it's tough to negotiate. But when there are a lot of different hotels across the street from each other, it's, it's a setup that's much better for negotiating, for getting people a better values and find building, you know, good partnerships with the hotel vendors um, and, 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 and also the market was so large. You know, the lodging market worldwide is, is in the hundreds of billions. It's just so big that we only needed a small piece of it to do well. And probably most important is that consumers needed help. Consumers needed help booking tickets or finding a way to get availability that's convenient, easy, or to find better deals. And so that's how we started. That's how we came up with, uh, the concept for hotel reservations network, which was the original one. You didn't name- need to do, you didn't need to do any marketing research because it was, it was obvious that this was a need out there for people to find better deals on hotels and to have a one stop, one stop number they can call to get to book a room. Right. At that time in 1991, it, it was, it was, it, it was, it was very obvious. Uh-huh. So we didn't do market. We did market research later on as we got more sophisticated, but. But at the time, we really didn't do any market research. We didn't. We didn't feel we needed to. And that turned out to be correct. It, it turned out to be correct. Well, in in 1995, uh, a friend of a friend was banging down our door, and said he had the greatest thing since sliced bread to present to us. And eventually, we we agreed to meet with him, and he came in and he showed us. A technology called the internet. Almost nobody you know, had any idea what it was. And he was using it for gaming. And he says, why don't we try this for hotels? Well, we were, and you have to remember at the time, there was, uh, there was no broadband. So internet was basically over a phone line and very, very slow, but he showed it to us and you can send an email out to somebody, say in the UK from Miami. And they could respond to you, but it would take, you know, it may take 15 or 20 minutes and it would come in one letter at a time. But it was pretty exciting to be able to communicate that way. 
And but we were skeptical, you know, largely because nobody knew what it was. It was an unknown technology. Um, so we were hesitant to put any money into it. He says, listen, you don't have to put in a penny. I'll build the hotel website for you and just pay me a commission. And that hotel website was hoteldiscount.com. It was one of the first uh, sites on the web, really in any field. There was very little at the time. Wow. Um, and that, uh, that launched in early 1996 as hoteldiscount.com. Um, and right away, almost overnight, it became about five to 6% of our business, which we couldn't believe. And of course it grew and it grew. And, and eventually, um, person's name was Dave Ray. He came back, uh, he came back to us, uh, uh, several months later and he needed some funding. He says, uh, you're interested in buying the site because he owned it. We were paying him a commission. And we negotiated a deal. We ended up buying the sites and now we own the site. And later in, in, in October uh, of 97 was really what the whole paradigm of the internet changed because that's when um, IBM came out with the technology for the mid-frame systems that linked it to the internet. So that means that interactivity started. Mm-hmm. So interactivity means you didn't have to wait a long time to get a response. It could be instant. So you could be now in the UK or France or Italy or wherever it is and book a hotel room or send a request and you could get an instant answer. So that was a huge change because now, um, you know, before it was, it was, you know, it was exciting and people liked to do it because it was fun, but very, um, you know, had a limited audience because it was, it, it was slow, uh, wasn't so easy to understand. But now it became interactive. Now it was, it was, it was easy, simple, faster. Uh, and that dramatically changed the business for us. And we quickly adopted to really move our business as much online as we could and to start developing websites for any other company that needed a hotel website. Mm-hmm. Because at the time, you know, airlines didn't have them. Hotel companies didn't have them. Um, um, Tourism companies didn't have them. So we went out and we offered to build websites for other companies. We private labeled them, which means we would make the website look just like their site. So it was seamless from a consumer perspective. Uh, so somebody would be shopping on, on say an airline site or a tourism site for information or airline tickets or car rentals, and they could right away book a hotel room through the same site. And we own the technology, we would build it for the company and pay them a commission. And so we did thousands, thousands upon thousands of these websites. We could produce one within minutes. And we had a very, very significant portion of, of the hotel rooms booked online at the time um, that were kind of non-hotel bookings were going through our company and our affiliated network. Um, so that's kind of the beginning of what ended up becoming Hotels.com. Uh, well, just a lot of a lot of what's happened in the past few years has been moving from from location to remote. Was at that time in was everything centered in Miami, and you just brought in employees that knew what they were doing and knew the technology of how to build websites for and how to book the booking technology. Was that all happening in a central location, or that was that was remote work even back then? 
so we had several offices. Uh, we our, our our central location was in in Dallas, Texas, because that's where my business partner was located, and that's where we centered the call centers, customer care, technology. And I had the operation, uh, I, I focused on sales and marketing. So we had uh, many of the market managers and kind of the sales team business development was based in Miami. Mm-hmm. And of course, we had market managers that lived in the markets around the world. Um, so that's that's how we set up. Uh, some people, were, most of the people were in the office. Uh, you know, later, years later, we started doing uh, when the technology improved, we started doing call centers where people were at home. So, for example, working home mothers could, you know, stay at home and work during certain hours and just and just log in through their uh, through their laptops and, and 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 use a headset. And and we had kind of a virtual call centers, um, but a kind of our core people, our core salespeople, customer care, and so forth, uh, were, were 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 largely in the office. Um, and uh, it was much more kind of our reservation team that part of it was virtual. And of course, today is a very different story. Yeah. <laughs> so that once once it became hotels, hoteldiscounts.com became hotels.com. Is that correct? So what happened was that uh, uh, in, in, in late 99, we, we, we were approached to uh, sell the company and we were, um, uh, we were majority... And, we sold a majority interest to USA Networks, which ended up being a, a, a interactive corp. Um, and we retained a significant portion. We took the company public, still as hoteldiscount.com. And in, in about the year 2001, we had a, a executive brainstorming a couple day session. Well, where do we go next? And we decided that it was really time because we were mostly uh, handling handling hotel bookings for other companies. We decided it was time to do it directly, but we didn't really have a brand name. Hotel Reservations Network or HRN is what we were known in the industry. It was not a household name. So we ran through a lot of different names, anything, everything from room.com to lodging, to check-in, to checkout, to <laughs> inns, et cetera. And, and we ended up, uh, pretty much having a consensus among our executives that hotels.com would be the very best name we could possibly uh, acquire. And so um, I knew the owner of hotels.com because uh, the owner was an affiliate uh, of ours. And I also knew the owner of hotel.com. You can't buy hotels.com without having hotel.com because people will type in hotel.com. And then you, you bought something and right away, um, a big part of your business is siphoned off. So right. we had to buy both at the same time. So we had a, I, I arranged for a third party to negotiate and to buy both sites simultaneously. And, and we closed it. And of course, then we changed our name to uh, um, hotels.com. And before uh, we did an awareness, this is when we started to do studies. We did an awareness study and we acquired the name. Almost no one knew of the name hotels.com. And then we started a marketing campaign uh, and we started it with television. And uh, um, I was the director, producer. Uh, my business partner and I worked on all these things together. We a- actually acted in the commercials together. Okay. And, uh, and we kept our costs low. Uh, we used the 
a film that we used to get criticized because we used the lowest cost film we possibly could do. Uh, it was a fraction of, of kind of the high technology film that was used. And it had a little bit of tint to it, but everyone would comment on it. We like when people comment because, uh, you know, publicity's, uh, publicity's good, you know, regardless if, uh, if they don't like the commercial, they like the commercial, but we just want them to talk about it. It looked a little bit like That's, the real, the reels in the 1930s, kind of like that. Like that. Yeah, but, okay. uh, but they were, they were funny commercials and, and they were very memorable. And within nine months, it was probably one of the fastest branding campaigns in history. Within nine months, we did a second awareness study and over 80% of the market of the U.S. market had awareness of the name hotels.com. Um, so it was, it was, it was an amazingly fast branding campaign. It was mainly with television, although we I'm also supplementing. So I did a lot of PR. I was on radio and television uh, almost every day talking about the company. And uh, we also did radio. I was often on the radio and we you know, did some print and some, of course, some online ads, which became bigger with time. Um, but we were very successful in making that a household name within a relatively short period of time. And then and then. This is hotels. This is early nineties. Oh no, sorry. This is, this is the about around two thousand. So this is already early two thousand. Right. Of course, you know, we went public, and our stock was oversubscribed uh, twenty some times. We came out at a sixteen dollar stock price. The stock hit a high of about ninety two. Now, while this was going on, Nasdaq was crashing, mm-hmm. and of course, Nasdaq had one of their biggest drops uh, um, ever at that time. Because there were so many companies coming out that were technology companies and internet companies that had no earnings and really had no prospect of earnings. We were very profitable. It was very, it, it, it was, it was really a crazy thing. But when we decided to go public, we interviewed many bankers and we really went from major bank to major bank on Wall Street. And, and almost every bank told us the same thing. You know, Bob, you're too profitable. Believe it or not, we're one of too profitable. Uh, now we were we kept our marketing expense at somewhere around three to three to four percent of revenues, mm-hmm. and most companies in the industry were spending fifty to one hundred percent or more of their of their revenues on on marketing. So we kept it very small percentage. We were very disciplined. We were very profitable. Um, we kept our marketing costs low. We did that through then keeping. Lowering the cost of uh, television production, uh, we bought in a very innovative way. We bought excess type of space. Uh, um, I did a lot of the marketing directly, uh, and so we were able to keep costs very low. But Wall Street didn't look at it that way. <laughs> they said you should be reinvesting in the company. Mm. You should show um, you should be showing losses and not such great profits. And they suggested, and this was. Almost every bank gave us the same message. They said their investors won't have an appetite for a profitable internet company. And they said, you should go uh, change your business model, spend most of your revenue on marketing, show a loss for three or four quarters, and then come back to us. Well, I said, I said, you guys are nuts. Pretty much every one of these bankers. And we finally found a more conservative banker. It was DLJ, which uh, merged into Credit Suisse. And they loved our model. <laughs> they really embraced it. And so they became the lead underwriters in our public offering. 
And we went out, as I said, we were 20 times oversubscribed. Um, our stock went from 16 to, to 92, but with justification because we were very profitable and we were very disciplined. And, you know, at the same time, most other companies were going the other way because they weren't disciplined in their, in their, uh, um, their expense line. They were just growing at any cost and that just didn't make any sense. And we never believed it made any sense. It's not, uh, we're what you call conservative entrepreneurs. We, uh, we're conservative, meaning that we're very careful. We watch the bottom line carefully. We build it carefully. You know, people come to me all the time. They said they have this great idea and they want to market it around the world. And I say, do you know how much it costs to buy internet ads or buy advertising? I said, why don't you start small? Start in one little area. Now we started, we started in, we started in one city in New York. We expanded six cities, but we, uh, worked for, for a long period of time before we expanded beyond six cities because we wanted to really perfect the model. And that's what I tell people. Start small, start slow, be careful. Most businesses stay out because they don't control the bottom line. They just don't have that discipline. Where, um, where, where did you get the discipline? Where, where do you think that came? How do you know not to be? I know there's, there's, all, there's excitement when, when things look like they're about to blow up and it's about to become big, big. There's that, that, that rush of adrenaline. How do you know, how do you know to keep it, to keep calm and to make sure that, that the priorities are straight? Where's, where did that come from? Well, I really grew up being very methodical. So I went to, I went to Jewish day school and, uh, you know, I studied, I studied Talmud and other Jewish texts and it was, uh, it was, it was really, uh, uh, a great discipline in terms of tearing things apart and analyzing and trying to understand every side and making an argument on every side and really tearing. Uh, and, and the same thing in law school was a very similar process of, of, uh, uh, of, of, you know, we, it was largely the Socratic method then. And you had to really understand, understand each case, compare it to another case, tear it apart, analyze it. So that's kind of the discipline I grew up in. I'm an economics major. Uh, and so, and I also took a lot of finance courses. So I was uh, very, very much focused on the numbers and always believed that that's, uh, you have to be focused on the numbers. You can't just, it's both. You can't just, you know, some people say that the head, uh, the head comes first and the tail will follow. I think they both have to go at the same time. You don't want the head running down the street without the tail, I want the tail <laughs> running backwards without the head. So they both need to go hand in hand. And that's, that's, that's always been my approach. I believe that's, um, um, uh, it should always be the approach. And, and, and again, I tell people start slow, work in one market, make it work. Don't spend a lot of money, perfect your model. If you figure out what's working, then you can put more resources into it mm-hmm. versus just trying to, because, uh, it's very, it's very, it's very, it's very easy to spend money. Very easy. It's much more difficult to be disciplined mm-hmm. and. Even today, when anyone comes in, they want to spend on a project. The first thing I ask is, what is the ROI? What is the return on the investment? Because, you know, if we're going to hire somebody, let's just say it costs $100,000 a year. Well, are we going to, are we going to earn? Is that person going to earn for the company a lot more than 100,000? We want to multiply on that. If we're going to buy a piece of software and it costs us 5,000, well, you know, we want to see 50, 100,000 return on that or more. So. That's, that's, uh, you know, I tell people, don't come to me with a spending uh, proposal unless you can show me what the return is going to be at the same time. 
did you ever have a challenge in in your career? Did you ever have a challenge of of wanting to let your head lead, and and or were you just so rooted in discipline that it was never really uh, difficult for you? Well, we were always challenged. I mean, we had a at at Hotels.com we had a parent company because uh, USAI, which became Interactive Pork, was our parent. They own a majority of the company, um, and so. They had their own ideas about growth and acquisitions and so forth. We didn't always agree, um, but we kept to, you know, we kept to our principles and we kept to our discipline, regardless of a lot of pressure from, from, from others. Uh, uh, and, and it ended up working in the end. And it's the same. And after we sold hotels.com, we had a five year non-compete. Um, my business partner, I launched get a room.com, uh, which had a different, a different, it was a different business model, it was different times, but we exercised the exact same discipline and, and the exact same principles. We ended up uh, selling that company and ended up, uh, it was merged with Booking, with Booking Holdings the last year. And we launched another company called Travel Funders Network, which I'm, uh, president of now, same uh, business partner. We're, we're focused on the wholesale market for hotels, but again, the same, we operate with the same discipline the same conservatism and you know the principles of running a business don't really matter what field you're in um i mean what area you're in uh it's it's really the same the same principles apply so in the in terms of you mentioned you drew upon that you had gone to jewish jewish day school that gave you a um a a a foundation of of analyzing things from different angles and tearing things apart and not necessarily taking things for granted because somebody says they're true. So can you, can you give us some more background on what, what was your Jewish upbringing? And, and I know there's, I know there's some story there about, about reconnecting maybe because uh, you you write very eloquently about your Jewish, what, what your Judaism has to inform about on, on your business practice. So I'd, I'd love to hear that story and, and how that, how that works into your business outlook. Well, so when I started in business, uh, I really, I had, I didn't, I had no mentor. I didn't work in a big company. I worked at a law firm. I was practicing law. So it's very different than being in a business. So I understood the legal aspects of it and how to, how to, how to stay out of trouble and how to figure out how to, how to get things done. But I didn't have any background in business. Um, other, other than my background, um, other, other than how I grew up and what I saw at home, you know, my dad was a businessman. I helped him uh, growing up, but, but a lot of the principles are just, Really what I learned. So let me give an example. Uh, every year, what do we say as we get to the um, springtime? And we get to uh, uh, probably the most um, observed holiday of all the holidays in Judaism is Passover. And so how is this night different? How is this night different than all other nights? That's your fundamental question of business. And that's what I think about whenever I hear Think about a business, try to decide what business to go into. And, you know, people run their business plans by me all the time. And that's kind of the first question I ask. business businesses. What is different about your business from all the other people in the field? And did you do your homework? Did you see who else is in this field? Um, because maybe there's somebody doing exactly what you do. And there's no, is there a need for your business? How is it unique? How is it different? Uh, there's lots of room for creativity. <laughs> Technology is always advancing, but are you doing something that's needed? So that's the, 
So if you can't, if you can't tell me how your business is unique and different, then that's the product. You can't tell me within a, within a, you know, a sentence or two what your business is and how it's different. There's an issue there. So that's, so that's kind of number one. How do you decide? How do, how do you, how do you, how do you think about a business? But there are a lot of other principles I learned. For example, how do you handle employees? You know, this is one of the most difficult parts of the business. And in travel, um, your biggest expense really, um, is at least in my business has been, uh, employment, employees. So how do you handle employees? Well, it was, for me, it was very simple because, um, you know, you learn in Leviticus, treat others as you want to be treated, right? That's kind of a fundamental principle of Judaism. And what I tell my people in customer service is put yourself in the shoes of the customer. And that's how they should be treated. Now, a lot of companies have huge manuals and they go on large retreats and they spend a fortune trying to train on customer service. Some get it right, some don't. But customer service, I believe, is key, especially in the travel industry, is making people feel good about doing business with you. And, and really, the way to do that is you can't, you know, there's not always a square box to put an answer into. Uh, especially a lot of, a lot of areas are great. They're not really clear, but if you think about it from the, from customer service, which is one of the most important parts of travel, because it's like everybody wants to know, well, um, you know, people read reviews and, um, what do you think about this hotel? What do you think about this uh, current? What do you think about this place, this tour and so forth? Uh, the way people make decisions mostly today is by what others are saying. So you want to have good reviews and you want, and, and much of our business came from re, what we call repeats and referrals. In other words, repetitive business. We didn't have to go and market that customer. So when we pay for advertising and so forth and bring in a customer, we have to think about what is the lifetime value of that customer? Not just what is that customer worth the first time they come in? Well, if we have a, if we regularly can convert every customer into lifetime customers where they're buying three or four times a year, that's a much more valuable customer than someone that just buys one time. So repetitive business is really um, a big key to success and referrals, people that refer you. So customer service, that's really how to handle employees. <laughs> Number one, how you, it's how you handle employees and how you handle customers. It's really both. Now, from the employee perspective, I, mean, you know, I learned in Jewish day school, you have to pay your employees on time. Um, a lot of Talmudic discussions about that, about the, don't let your worker go to the next day because they may not have food to eat. And so I really take that to heart. And uh, we've always paid our employees on time um, and treat them fairly. So in our companies, there's no, you know, there's no politics. There's, it doesn't matter what race, creed, color, religion you are. It makes absolutely no difference. The only thing that matters is your performance. And so uh, and a lot of times people walk through our companies and it looks like the United Nations. And, you know, our executives are, are as diverse as you get. Uh, because we promote people that, that, um, that have the skills and that are qualified and, and everything else doesn't matter to us. Uh, so that's just kind of something I learned that it, it was kind of natural to me because that's how I grew up and that's what I learned. And that's what, um, uh, that's what I learned through, through the study of Tom Mode and other, uh, uh, you know, in Jewish day school. So that's, that kind of passed on to my, uh, business life. Also, uh, Building a reputation for integrity, and that's part of keeping customers. And, and, and look at the, 
the, the, the companies that really do well, well, the ones that don't give you returns and the ones that, um, the ones that are, um, very difficult to deal with on a customer service side, uh, are the ones that people don't patronize. People patronize the companies that are easy to return, are friendly, uh, uh you know, are, are, uh, you know, have empathy, understand, uh, just have a much higher level of customer service. And so that's, that's always been a, kind of big focus of our companies and a big focus of, of mine and uh, the other executives to make sure that the customers are treated well all, all the way along. It's employees, the customers, our business partners, our hotel and other travel vendors. Everybody has to be treated well. Everybody has to feel good about doing business with us. Um, and so that's, that's, that's really kind of how we, we make everyone in our companies feel part of the family. And uh, um, we've had that uh, we've, Try to give out our, you know, option plans as deep as we can in the company. That's a big part of someone that works with us, especially in a, in, in a major sales type role, but they're owners of the company. And so they're owners of the company. They feel differently about the company. It's not just a clocking in nine to five. So those are, those are all the type of things that, that came natural to me based on my uh, upbringing. Do your employees and your customers, do they know that this is coming from your upbringing or they just think that Bob Diener's a nice guy? No, it's not that a nice guy. Fair. So the answer, the answer can be no. Um, so, but they know that they come in and they have a request that I'm going to listen to them and that I'm going to, I'm going to be fair. I'm going to treat them the same as I want anyone else in the company. And that if I believe that it has merit, then, then, then it'll go somewhere. If I believe it doesn't have merit, then I'll tell them no. So, um, but they know that I'm fair regardless. They know that they're dealing with, with, uh, they know if they're dealing with us, uh, that we're going to be fair. And I think that's, that's what's most important because the answer isn't always, no, you know, a customer calls up and they're irate because something happened at the hotel and you know, the faucet's leaking and they're mad, but we'll go back to the hotel and we'll try to work something out for them. But sometimes it's their fault. You know, they didn't show up because uh, uh, they were late getting out of the house, but that's different than a storm coming that, that, that where they couldn't get in. So a force majeure event is very different than the negligence. So, we have to weigh each case one by one, but the, the bottom line is having an absolute policy uh, uh, of fairness. And, and then there's giving back. And I think that's very important. And we try, we certainly do this. Uh, my business partner and I do this personally is that we, we get, there's always, um, uh, you know, in Judaism, there's you, uh, we have a standard of giving back 10% of your earnings, a minimum of 10% of your earnings to charity to help others. And, and to help your community. And so we try to do things. Uh, of course, we do it personally, but we all also at, at our different companies we had, we've had employee matching, for example, where we would match up to a certain amount if an employee donates to say a local organization that they care about. Um, and we've done other programs where we would donate a certain portion of the, of the profits or the proceeds of the sale to a certain charity. We've helped, for example, on different hurricanes. So we've done. Um, we've supported, I mean, all kinds of local community projects. So we try to do things to become a, a socially good company, but also to, uh, be charitable, not only for ourselves, but for help our employees become charitable and they feel good about themselves. They feel good about the company and, and the employees, uh, and, and the customers see it as well. And they tend to patronize companies that, that are good citizens. Very good. Okay. So. 
Bob, I appreciate this very much. I love these insights. And now we're going to open up the, the floor. Oh, good. Thanks okay. for that, Bob. It was very interesting and insightful. Sure. Okay, Brett and Lori. Yeah, Brett and Lori. I guess, um, Lori, do you have uh, a question that you'd like to ask Bob? Yeah, first of all, thank you for sharing. You have an amazing story and your outlook on things. Really cool. Um, so I also go to the University of Florida and I'm studying advertising. So I'm taking also an entrepreneurship class and they talk about, you know, there's a different speakers that talk about their stories. Um, and I guess my question would be like, how do you find what you're passionate about to, you know, either create your own business or, you know, get into something that you're interested in? Like, how do you find what speaks to you? So that's a really good question. By the way, I'm also a Gator undergrad and I taught entrepreneurship there uh, several years ago. So that's great that you're pursuing that track. So that's, you know, God gave all of us kind of unique talents and they're all different. Every one of us is different. And it's, uh, unfortunately, God didn't say, okay, here's your manual and here, here's what you're really good at. So you have to figure it out. What, what are those talents that you have that are unique, right? It could be you're a great public speaker. It could be you're a great analyzer. It could be you're great with kids. It could be you're great with elderly. It could be you're great with um, analytics, engineering. Okay, whatever it is, uh, you have to figure out what is that, 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 what are the natural resources that you have been given that are unique to you that you can use to fulfill your passion? Okay. Cause if, if you really, if you have those natural resources to begin with, well, it's great to take that and tap it into something and um, make it much more powerful. And, and then what do you care about? Or what's important to you? For me, I, I, I love to travel. Uh, so I travel. I, I love to travel. I went around the world after law school and I realized, hey, this is really my passion. And I love business and finance and economics. Um, and so I kind of merged those together. And, and that's where that's where I set off on my career. Um, but for everybody, it's different. And so you have to figure out, take a really combination of what your talents are, natural talents, and what gets you excited. Or what's, what gets you excited when you wake up? What gets you passionate about something? What gets you angry? What gets you angry? Well, maybe that's something you got to fix, right? Or what if you look at things and for me, I couldn't stand, uh, I, I tried to get a room in New York City for, for New Year's Eve. And I think, uh, one time, I think I called 40 hotels. They're all telling me we're sold out. I said, well, who's got rooms? I have no idea. <laughs> Try this one. Or, uh, and, and I spent two or three hours doing it. I go, what if we could do this in, in a 30-second phone call, right? Well, there, that's what I did, okay? Or, yeah. or I'd be upset. I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be hearing that I'm checking into a hotel and somebody got a rate that's $50 less than me. You know, maybe I'm looking over their shoulder and seeing their bill. And, you know, how did they get a better deal? You know, what'd she do to get that better deal? So, okay, form the company that gets people back, negotiate for the consumer. That's, that's kind of part of what we do in our companies. But so that's how you have to think really a combination of what do you have that's unique and what are you really passionate about? What gets you excited? What, what do you like to do? Cause if you do something that you love, then it's not so much a job. It's a passion and entrepreneurship really takes um, a passion. Because there's no nine to five. You know, when you're an entrepreneur, you're not an employee, you're an entrepreneur. You're, you're finding something unique. You're finding, you're creating a solution to something. 
and it's got to be in your blood. So it doesn't matter. But right. Saturday night at 10 p.m., you're thinking about it. You think I, I would? I think about my businesses all the time. Okay, maybe I'm not in the office working. Okay, but I'm thinking about it. Um, and, and I'm thinking about it because I love what I do. So if you love what you do, it you'll work on it. You'll work harder. You'll be more passionate about it. Um, and that those are you've got to marry those two things. Uh, your 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 kind of innate natural resources and what you're passionate about. So I hope that makes sense. Yeah, thank you. Of course. Bet, bet before your question, I want to I want to ask a question based on your answer to Lori. What about profitability? Profitability, like what if you're passionate passionate about something, but you're not sure how can I turn this into a living? Does that make a difference? How how much of a role does that play? Yeah. So yeah, so, so they're really, they're really two different things, right? If, if you're working in a business for a profit, that's and if you're running a business and you've got to be spending money if you're going to be maybe getting investors okay you have a fiduciary duty to make that business profitable and do as best you can in that business so that's very different than finding a cause you're fighting for or want to fix that's not going to be for profit okay that's a really something very different so work hard and find your find your passion in business and make a lot of money at it so you can take a portion of that and fund those projects that, 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 that you believe in and want to help that are nonprofits because, um, it's not typically they're, typically they're totally different. And if, you know, if you're in a business and you've got, you've got employees and maybe they're, maybe they're on bonuses or maybe they're, they're, they have stock options and you have investors and so forth, you have to focus on that business and the profitability. And that's different than running a charity where you're, uh, raising money or donating to help a certain cause. It's not necessarily a profitable cause, but that's okay. You're using your profits. You take it from one to donate to the other. And, you know, one thing about, I'll say that makes uh, Judaism very different than some of the other religions is that we're, we're not an ascetic religion. You know, we had one of our greatest heroes of all was King Solomon. He was, he was reputed to be the wealthiest or one of the wealthiest people in the world, right? And he had tons of horses and stables and castles, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, uh, there's nothing wrong with doing that as long as you're helping others at the same time. Uh, as long as you're using that wealth, because when we're given success and wealth, we're basically a steward and it's our obligation to, the, uh, of course, you got to help your family, you got to help your community, but it's our obligation to also help others that are in need at, as part of those blessings that we receive. Brad, is there something you'd like to ask? Yeah, I'd like to. Um, I'd like to ask Bob. When did you know, you know, sort of in the business that you were in, that you you'd reach that point of of critical mass? You know, when. Uh, you know, you, you spoke about 3% of your, of your top line was spent on marketing. Um, you know, and obviously at a, at a point in, in the business, when you're first starting out, um, you know, that, that 3% might be a hundred percent, might be more. Um, you know, you have to kind of, what, what, where I'm trying to get at is you have to kind of invest ahead of the curve when it comes to marketing and sp- specifically I'm in the, um, consumer packaged goods industry where, you know, your product goes into shelf and that idea of building something and there will come, you know, it doesn't really exist. You know, you have to get the product to move off the shelf. 
So my question for you is where, where was that? Was there a tipping point? Um, and you know, was it, was it a, a story of perseverance until that tipping point came? So in, in, in most businesses, uh, you're going to put together a business plan and it's going to sound beautiful and rosy, but the chance of it going according to that business plan is extremely low. Okay. And any business, it's a circumcutus route. It's not a straight road and you're going to have bumps. And, and I'll, I'll give you an example. All my businesses, we had bumps and we've changed directions many times. I'll give you an example. When we started hotel HRN, hotel reservations network, the kind of pre company to hotels.com. We started it out um, where basically we booked and the hotels paid us a commission. And we thought this is great. All these hotel companies will get the commission checks coming in every week. We don't need a lot of accounting. We don't need to do billing. The hotels are just going to pay us the commissions based on what we book. Well, guess what? Very few hotels actually paid the commission. And we would start looking to, okay, why didn't they pay the commission? They didn't have a record of it. The name was misspelled. Uh, it's a non-commissionable rate. Uh, there were so many excuses that I ended up becoming a full-time bill collector, commission collector. I said, this is, this is not the business that, that this is not going to work. Um, and so we totally changed the model and we created what's called the merchant model, which is the predominant model today for hotel bookings because we realized that, um, if, if, if consumers just pay the hotel, that we're never going to get paid. So we changed the model to where consumers paid us. And then the hotels bill us. Now, people have s- said to me, who's going to pay you up front? You're an unknown company. Well, guess what? We had no problem. People pay up front. I'm sure you all book hotel rooms and or other, other travel and you've paid up front. You almost always pay up front for your airline ticket. Um, so, uh, so we developed the models called the merchant model where basically consumers pay us, hotels bill us, and we set up billing with, we set up credit with hotels. And it was such a great model that it gave us what we call a float, which means most businesses where you need a lot of funds up front to get your business going. Well, we figured out a way where we didn't need to go out and raise funds because our, cons- our customers funded us. So how did that work? So you pay, for example, day one for a hotel room. You check in an average of 30 days later. The hotel bills us an average of 30 days after that. And typically we have 30 days to pay. So we had a 90 day float on all our funds. So as the company grew, we had more funds automatically. And then we could use those funds to put a certain percentage into the, into the marketing, which expanded us even more. So we were very creative in terms of how we um, funded and expanded the business, but we totally changed the model. And we did that again with Get A Room. We totally pivoted the model after about a year being in business because it wasn't working. At Get A Room, we, the, the, when we first came out, we were going to market directly to consumers. And we realized this just is not going to work. There's too much competition. There's too many good companies that are out there that are, buying ads on television and all over the internet. And, and we just could not compete. We totally shifted the model. Um, so that's the case. A lot of businesses, you have to just, you have to listen. You have to be adaptable. You have to be flexible. And a lot of times you just have to change the model to make it work. 
you have any suggestions for Brett with his, uh, if Brett feels he has to, he has to put in a lot of, a lot of money to get awareness of his products, to get it off the shelf. And so he has to put a lot into marketing. Right. And again, that, that's the case with a lot of businesses. And, um, I, I, I'm a big believer in doing your own as much marketing as you can directly for your company. For example, um, I, I would, I would write a story. I'd write an article about some, uh, some place that's, I, I would go traveling. I would write about that visit. I'd write about hotels there. I'd send them to publications. A lot of them would pick it up. Some word for word, some would change it, but that way we would be promoting the company. Uh, I would make calls when I would travel. I would, I would call the local television morning shows and I'd often be invited as a guest on those shows. And we would talk about, you know, people like to talk about the, our commercials because, uh, you know, I acted in them. So I thought it was fun. Okay. Have the, 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 the president of the company also rates and acts in this commercial. That's a fun thing to talk about. Or maybe was that, uh, I'm going to come and talk about the 10 most popular places to travel right now. Everybody wants to travel, right? People love that. Here's someone that's, that's, that's running a travel company willing to come on our show. And of course it was free and I was able to promote the company. So for everybody, it's different. Every industry is different. But what I'm saying is to be creative and come up with ways where you can promote the company at very low cost, especially initially. Okay, amazing. Any other questions from Brett or Lori? Okay. So, Bob, thank you so much for – yeah, oh, Brett, you have something? Yeah, just um, if we if we do have, um, you know, questions or, uh, you know, blockage points in our own business or, you know, is there a way of – you know, connecting with Bob or, you know, an email, something, you know, a, a forum where we can send that to. Sure. Yeah. Bob, I mean, Bob, are you okay with uh, direct contact? <laughs> You're not going to say no now. <laughs> yeah. Send it, send it, uh, send it, send it, send it, send it through Tuvia. Tuvia has my contact. Okay. Good. But I'll, I'll let you know how to, how to get in touch. Yeah. Listen, I wish Perfect. you all lots of, uh, lots of success with all your endeavors. And uh, again, uh, stay, stay, stay on the path and, you can, I, I wrote, I wrote a book called the, the biblical secrets to business success. So, and a lot of, a few things that we talked about are in that book. You can get it on Amazon. Just put my name in Bob Diener, D-I-E-N-E-R. And it's a, it's a book that will help guide you towards uh, a lot of questions about entrepreneurship and doing it in the right way. Okay. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Thank you for sharing. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Have a great well. day. Bye-bye. You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.